Coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona, this is Monica, and welcome to the Home Health Occupational Therapy Explorer podcast as a creation from Till and Water. Are you a home health OT feeling a bit uninspired, overwhelmed, or unresourced, but ready for change? Then stay tuned because we are dedicated to bringing you inspiration for possibility and nourishment of your home health OT mindset. So let's reinvent together starting here today and dig into this episode recorded in 2019. This archived yet priceless episode is part of a wrap up from season two. So please pardon and enjoy any dated references to the world pre-COVID. Welcome back and let's dig in. So welcome back to the Home Health Occupational Therapy Explorer podcast. I'm very excited to be sitting here actually for one of the first live podcast interviews with Mary Platt for part two. Um, Mary and I did a podcast together a couple episodes ago, if you haven't yet caught that. And Mary really is one of the occupational therapists who blew open my mind to what OTs could really do with addressing cognition. So Mary, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. (laughs) So today what we're moving forward with is a little bit of first um, hearing from Mary what resources were most important and perhaps most impactful for her as she used occupational therapy to address cognition and and I do want people to know if you haven't yet heard the first podcast, Mary did start out doing um, more traditional home health in her career, and then she ended up branching off and doing private practice. And I'll let her say a little bit more about some of the specifics of that. Um, but generally, she was working with addressing cognition specifically and tough cases. And she really dove deep with people um, and was able to do occupational therapy in the live environment of these people and these families where cognition was one of the main pieces. And so today I've asked Mary to share some of her stories uh, about how she used occupational therapy in these live environments. And I do want you to know these are not traditional home health stories of OT and very closely related because of it being in the environment. So Without further ado, Mary, should we kick it off with first just hearing about um, supplies or not supplies, references? References, sure. Um, And I should say the private practice was also private pay. So I was not billing Medicare or uh, managed care. So I was hired by um, geriatric care managers and guardians, a couple cases with lawyers, a couple of physicians hired me. Um, or recommended me. So I had really an open field in terms of uh, being able to apply the skills and education and ask the questions and pull in the resources I felt were appropriate, but didn't have to be constrained by um, Medicare or Medicare, yeah. which was a huge luxury. Yes. And I should also say that I was trained by Claudia Allen specifically uh, in the, um, I believe if my dates are right, I think she developed the uh, ACL tools right around the 1980s, beginning of the 1980s. And I trained with her in the early 90s. And she had been a professor. And so sure, her workshops were 
spot on, intense. Um, we would be there if my memory serves me correctly. I think it was all day Friday, all day Saturday, part of the day Sunday, much of the day Sunday, and then we flew home. She was in California, so mostly she taught in California. And I live in Oregon, so it was a flight down there. And um, her content was extensive and deep. And it's, for those of us who were tra uh, trained uh, by her in those days, the way in which some of the um, uh, Alan is used now is disturbing because some people have no idea about the cognitive disability model that it's based on, the theoretic, theoretic model. And so one of the things I was interested in talking about before we get into my stories is um, giving people some original references that can guide them. Um, the first one, and I, I hope that it's still available through AOTA, was published by uh, Claudia Allen, Catherine Earhart, uh, E-A-R-H-A-R-T, and Tina Blue. And the title is Occupational Therapy Treatment Goals for the Physically and Cognitively Disabled. And it is a, it's a thick book, um, but it is such a good foundation and I think gives people a sense of um, the specific range. There are just tables and tables and tables translating each of the modes into specific elements according to these categories behavior assistance needed, the goal and warnings associated mm -hmm. with each mode. And the manual that I wrote um, or compiled really drew from this book and just reformated it and made it applicable to home health specifically because that's where I needed it. Mm -hmm. The uh, Ellen was developed um, within hospitals and clinics and it was hard for me to take their materials into home health and be able to be able to um, reference the nuts and bolts of what I needed for that practice there. Yeah. And so the manual that I wrote was given that, but it yeah. came from, it drew from these references as well as the training materials that I got when I was training. And when Claudia was training, she had three levels of training. Mm -hmm. So you'd start one year, you'd start with that first three day workshop, and then you'd go home and and, and try it and use it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then you'd come back for a more advanced level yeah. and then come back for another more advanced level. And then she also used to offer an expert level, which is something I did as well. And that happened in Florida and it was a week long training and um, also very intense. But then you were certified as being an Ellen expert. So this is fascinating, actually, to hear this background mm -hmm. of all the training that really went into this, because this is probably like a at least of what, four-year process before oh, yeah. a training. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I'm curious to know also, since internet wasn't necessarily like the big way of marketing these days, oh, no. mm -hmm. how did you, how did this come across your radar? Was it like in school you remembered? No, no. I, well, I went to school in the 70s. Right. <laughs> um, she was teaching then, but I was not in California. Um, I was introduced to her work when in home health in Portland for visiting nurses association. And I had left the field uh, for about 14 years to raise my own children. And then when I came back into the field, she was on the radar. And one of the clinicians that I worked with specialized in uh, mental health issues. And she was trained uh, with Claudia and 
and skilled in the Allen cognitive levels. And I was blown away by what she could do and how she solved problems and how she saw patients. And, and then right around that time, Claudia came to Oregon and was a keynote speaker at a geriatric conference. And I was spellbound, just spellbound. And and then I just went wherever she was and took trainings. And um, in those days, VNA paid us. I was also they, curious about that yeah, too. They paid for our training. I had to pay for the flight and the hotel, but they paid for the training. That's and the trainings weren't hugely expensive. They were, you know, they're Hundreds a little bit maybe. of change, but yeah. not bad. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it was quite a lot of time and money invested in yeah. in learning it. Um, hmm. The other Allen-related resource that is essential um, is, and people, if they're working off a photocopy of this, that's illegal and not okay, um, because this reference is so complete, it's expensive, but it is really a sound um, foundation. And it's the Manual for Allen Cognitive Level Screen 5, and um, the large Allen Cognitive Level Screen 5, and published by Claudia Allen, Sarah Austin, Sandra David, Catherine Earhart, Dean McCraith, and Linda Riska-Williams. And um, this book provides updated understanding about what you're actually testing and the nuts and bolts of how to do it. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's an outstanding um tool. And I'm asked now a lot by friends or relatives about how to deal with their loved ones. And they'll say something about an OT that's assessing them. And I'll ask them, you ask them if they're using version five. Mm -hmm. And if they're not using version five, don't listen to what they have to say. (laughs) Clearly, right. Because that person is not Mm -hmm. up to speed with what they should be doing professionally. Yeah. And if they're, um, and so then I often will send them with my manual too, and say, you know, if, if they, you know, if they're not cross-checking and they're not checking for patterns of behavior, they're just using the screening. That's not okay. Mm-hmm. That's not adequate. Mm-hmm. So strong feelings about that. Yes, <laughs> rightly so. And I know that in the last probably 10 years, there've been a lot of trainers that have attended um, the master clinicians that we're teaching, um, that I trained with and worked with and knocked off that, that material. They, they'd take their slides and they would reproduce them and, and take them to their own agencies. And so that's a it's an enormous ripoff of fabulous information. Mm. And so if people mm. have had that kind of training, they should dig deeper. Yeah. Um, and I was telling you, well, maybe I shouldn't mention this yet because it hasn't been manifested, but I'm working with another OT in the field to create a website and put our our information, things we've created and reference what are the foundations of what should be included in this model, this understanding of the model, like the principle of remaining abilities, the just right challenge, can do, may do, will do. And if people don't understand those terms, they've not had a good training in the tool. Grasp of it. Yes. And please, yes, you let me know when you're ready for a podcast when you guys release that. Yeah, that's what we will. The other uh, reference related to the Allen model is the Allen Diagnostic Module. And this was created, it's a big yellow binder. Um, 
that was created by Kathy Earhart. And it is a brilliant, brilliant collection of uh, craft-related activities that are meant to help um, once you've gotten the screen done with the leather lacing, there are tasks that confirm that score. Um, they're not meant to be just fun activities that take up people's time. These are uh, clinically uh, designed tools. And what's beautiful, uh, the beginning section uh, of the notebook is, I don't know, maybe 100 pages long or maybe not that long, but it has a lot of really valuable training insight about the Allen tools as well. It's a, in itself freestanding, useful information. Uh, Kathy had a terrific way of framing information. Right. And then um, the various activities have a scoring sheet along with them so that you can present something. I think a lot of people are familiar with the placemat where you've got a piece of kind of uh, heavy fabric and then these little felt shapes mm -hmm. and uh, they're meant to copy a design of a pattern that you have presented them with and then there's a scoring sheet that goes along with that that's a pretty low level it's like I think 3.8 ish uh, range of what it's testing but she has uh, activities that span through 6.0 and my favorite out of that higher level um, activity, what ADM activity was the safety coaster. And it involves the person reading directions, uh, checking the supplies that involve an iron, um, two kinds of um, scissors, one for fabric and one for paper. Uh, they've got a, um, a ruler. There's several different kinds of fabric to choose from. There's bonding material and an intricate pattern to copy and make. And the scoring sheet that goes along with that is amazing. Yeah. And it shows you, it's meant to be used for, I think it's 4.6 through 6.0. So it's a higher level test. And you can then at each step of the process, um, check off where they've responded, what behavior you've seen. And so it's a, it's a very efficient way for you to both learn the tool, mm. learn what to watch mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. because it's all laid out for you. And then um, you've got your scoring sheet that you've done in real time, but you can go back to your office or your car and look <laughs> at it and make sense of it and see yeah. the pattern, see what where they mostly scored. Yes. Um, and that would be confirming what you've done with your testing and any of the other elements that you're looking at, how they use medications, how they use a telephone. And that's the essence of what the beauty of this tool. You're looking for patterns yeah. of behavior. And I, I want to highlight that phrase. It's so interesting that you landed on that phrase because I wanted to bring it back up because I know when I first, um, actually it wasn't even first, it was like a bit later on in my career where I, I it was introduced to be using the placemat mm -hmm. and it was at a skilled nursing facility and the way that I was kind of taught to use it by them was, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to get a score and that's the score that we'll recommend for their discharge. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of how I was just like, oh, okay, so this mm -hmm. is how we're going to do this. And I, and that's what I did. And then I really had, I went to home health and they didn't use anything ACL wise. And then we crossed paths at mm -hmm. a time when I understood more of the research and value of addressing cognition. And then as I started to enter into more of this cognitive wilderness, you know, so to speak, I remember being confused because I, I was under this 
impression, and, and I kind of bring this up in case there's anyone else out there who's having this potential aha moment where it's like, wait a minute. So this isn't just an assessment that means this. Mm -hmm. Like you, it's not just, oh, you do the leather lacing and that means therefore yes. this, or you don't just do the placement and then therefore it's this discharge level. There's these patterns of behavior that the it's kind of like doing a particular activity with the Allens gives you maybe a hint uh, like on the map of all the trails, it's like a, you are here. Yes. But then you're trying to be like, well, which trail is it? So exactly. Right. Um, it's interesting. When I first, um, when I first went into private practice, I would attend community lectures and things. And I was sitting next to a geriatric clinical psychologist and I was telling her about the Allen a little bit and the scale. And she said, oh, so the screening tool, the leather lacing tool, helps you know where to look. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I hadn't even <laughs> thought about it that way, but that's exactly it. The screening tool, the leather lacing is a starting point. Yeah. And hopefully you've got some other information before that moment. It really helps to have input from the rest of the team, um, how they're reacting to emotionally even how they're reacting to things how they're functioning can they take your phone call can they schedule that those are clues that should give you some insights um if they're having frequent falls that also is a kind of a tip-off that the attention is a problem mm -hmm. and so hopefully you're going into that moment with um some markers yeah. some cognitive markers yeah. but then you do the leather lacing and you get uh, hopefully that you're doing it properly and in, in a standardized way and you're thinking haha you know I think there must be maybe around a four 4.2 mm -hmm. and then you open either my manual or um, Claudia Allen's manual the first book that I mentioned and you look at 4.2 and you see in 4.0 and you think gosh they should be able to do this kind of thing when you've got the Allen diagnostic module notebook with all of these craft idea activities like the placemat placemat was never intended to be the screening tool mm -hmm. it was never intended to be the first thing or the only thing mm -hmm. oh my god um and so then you're pulling that in because and the <laughs> value of using the ADM, the craft activities, is there, there are new information for the person. Mm -hmm. So when you're making your assessments off of activities of daily living, it's useful information, but it's overlearned and it's, it's embedded with habit usually. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a good assessment tool for you. It's not a good marker to see with their pattern behavior. These activities, the craft activities are, they're fresh, they're mm -hmm. new, they're uh, confined and they have a score sheet associated with them that's very clean yeah. and then that should round out what you're saying and yeah. what you think of the person yeah and I can say for those um because I'm guessing there are definitely listeners who are traditional home health OTs and your manual has been incredibly helpful for Good. for me mm -hmm. and then learning from you also that you know, like you mentioned, let's say they're a 4.0, 4.2, I can use the manual and read the pages about a 4.0, 4.2, and kind of use some of the ideas on those pages to see where are they kind of failing. Yeah. So is like 4.2, let's say they're generally, they can do a lot of the things in the 4.2 ranges, but so then I try some 4.4 things. Yes. And if they fail out on 4.4, yes. then it's pretty safe. Yep. I found a 4.2. Yep. yep. That's exactly how it's meant to be used. So that, and that, thank you for teaching me that. <laughs> <laughs>
This is where we dedicate a moment in the podcast to support creating a diverse, equitable, and inclusive world, starting within our own lives. We understand that this is a journey and a commitment, not a one-time act. A super helpful resource and community can be found at COTAD, which stands for Coalition of Occupational Therapy Advocates for Diversity. This is a statement from their website. COTAD believes in action-oriented organizing to hold our profession accountable for creating a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive society. We are calling all members of the OT community to join us in sparking dialogue and igniting change to promote occupational justice. So we hope you check out their info in the show notes and stay strong in your continued work in these areas. It's yeah. such a... Um, and I can say that it's also such a humbling process of taking a bite out of this, incorporating more cognition into the practice because there's so much going on already on a very medical model yeah. experience that to incorporate these things when it feels like it is an elephant and it is it is the forest and like the wilderness, it has been really challenging and it has been also incredibly worth it Yeah, with good support. So yeah. I mean, like your support has been crucial. Um, so let's, and yeah, I'm, yeah, the, uh, two more references yeah, oh yeah. I wanted to mention, um, this one is not the, the Allen cognitive levels information is in it, but it's a much broader, um, exploration of cognition for OTs. It's edited by Numi Katz. Our last name is K-A-T-Z and it's an AOTA publication and it's called Cognition, Occupation and Participation Across the Lifespan. And the most recent one I have is third edition. There may be a newer edition. Um, anybody who's starting to, well, anybody who's working with cognition, this is this is your book. Yeah, you know, yeah. this is how you find mm -hmm. what this is all about. There are many different ways of approaching cognition and function. The Allen is one of them. Mm -hmm. um, but it's good to know other aspects of cognition. It'll help you see what this can offer. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also, like you said, it keeps you humble because um, if you're giving somebody a score and you're translating them as that, you should know better than that. And this will help you not do that. Mm -hmm. This will help you have a sense of humility about this is the score where they are, this is where I think they are, and this is let's see if this is a match mm -hmm. for them. If it's mm -hmm. helping the caregivers and discharge planners, yeah. then you've done a good job. The other reference, and this is outside of the Allen model, but has been so essential to me, is uh, Winnie Dunn, Dr. Winnie Dunn's work uh, with sensory processing. And she wrote a book for the general public called Living Sensationally, Understanding Your Senses, which has been hugely helpful. So in the same way that cognition can solve so many problems, especially in home health, once I started, then sensory processing is another piece of mm -hmm. that. So I think I was going to say and encourage people to really embrace and engage cognition is it is such an invisible kind of secret thing that's going on mm. that I'm pretty certain most of your other team doesn't really understand, mm -hmm. but is completely undermining things. So it's a lot like not understanding that a, a house should have a foundation, mm. even if it's a brick foundation, okay. if it's sitting on sand or dirt, you got trouble. Yeah. And so mm. when I started learning about cognition, I started looking at what we were doing at home health and we had all these wonderful handouts. We had all these forums. We were breezing in and out. We had our, our 
40 minute hour <laughs> going in and out <laughs> with our paperwork and and leaving people with home programs that they were supposed to yeah. follow. And the people could usually read it, read it to us. It did not mean anything to them. Right. It did not guide their behavior, didn't change their behavior. No. And if and then those people were labeled as I harped on this last time I remember. <laughs> people are accused of being non-compliant or in denial. And that is an ignorant person's label. If you are labeling people as non-compliant and in denial, you are ignorant mm. because you don't have a subtle understanding about cognition. Mm. So mm -hmm. danger, danger yeah. for the patient. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to say thank you to today's sponsor, Exercise Your Soul. So the name of it says a lot and you can imagine that's why I love the, their sponsor for today's episode and to get to tell you a little bit about this business. So this is a business based here in Phoenix, Arizona, available via Zoom and such great timing to tell you about this business. So founded by Rachel, who is an incredibly bright soul that in so many ways was able to help me at a time when it was an immense time of transition and unknown. And Rachel has this capacity in her coaching and her workshops in her circling. And now she even has a free ebook um, to hold this presence and this vision for a life that's possible without giving so much attention to the blocks and how to give attention to the possibility and not just attention to the possibility, but she has a way of doing it and bringing in whether it's mindfulness or just amazing questions or whether it's just holding space or meditation or it, the options are endless. What I know is that what Rachel's offering tremendously helped me in my life in beginning to be on a path that's more clear and empowered and supported. So if you're looking for a coach, if you're looking for workshops, um, she even has a free 30-minute consult to to help you decide if that coaching relationship and her coaching is a good fit for you. And I highly, highly recommend the work and the presence of Exercise Your Soul if you are in need of any additional support in your life for just living a light life and of having support for moving beyond barriers. If you're just like sick of dealing with the barriers, which I was when I reached out and, and found Rachel as just a bright human in the world. So again, a, a massive thank you to Exercise Your Soul. And if you're in need of coaching, workshops, information to just bring hope and inspiration, I so hope you visit Exercise Your Soul. You can find them online at www.exerciseyoursoul.org. You can also find them on Instagram at Exercise Your Soul, or you can email Rachel at Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, at exerciseyoursoul.org. Okay, yeah. stories. Um, <laughs> one of the challenges with, and I loved being in my own private practice, However, it was a challenge to be out there on my own. I was not, I didn't have nursing staff. I didn't have other rehab staff. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the things that I began to recognize, and I should say, I um, probably mentioned last one too, that I used not only the Allen Cognitive Levels materials, but I also always first tested people with the LATCA, Lowenstein Occupational Therapy Cognitive Assessment set for geriatrics. And I would start there because it told me so much. And one of the things that I began to realize that it told me first off is if people had any language impairment. And there was a shocking number of people that had a language impairment, not hearing impairment. I also carried a pocket talker and a light, odd light to eliminate those problems. But once I would start working with someone, the LATCA allows you to give directions verbally, written, or by demonstration. And so if they're not catching it verbally, then you can switch gears and point to things. Yeah. And you can begin to kind of screen. I mean, not kind of. You can begin to screen for some receptive aphasia. Mm -hmm. Expressive aphasia probably will be apparent to you. Yeah. But receptive aphasia is a little trickier if you're not a speech pathologist. Right. And so uh, this first couple that I'm going to tell you about um, a husband and wife and the husband was caring for his wife and the wife had been assessed. Um, she'd been in a facility, it's been a little while before I, since I've seen them, but I know that she had had a diagnosis of aphasia a while back, but the family never told me about that. And I had no chart to know that uh, only when I brought it out and said it to them. They said, oh, I think somebody's mentioned that before. But they had not incorporated that into any of their interactions with her. Hmm. And um, the husband and wife were living on their own uh, in the community. And the husband scored at um, a four point, how this her? Um, he scored at a 4.6. So he was pretty okay in their own home. They... They were quite wealthy, so they had a number of things that were serviced that, you know, problems didn't arise. He didn't have any particular health issues, so it wasn't medications or finances were taking care of somebody else. So, so a lot of the problems that can crop up for somebody who doesn't have those financial resources weren't there. But he was struggling to take care of his wife. Mm. And as far as his entire family was concerned, she was fine cognitively, but just being, uh, sitting all day, not mm -hmm. doing the things that she used to do. Yes. Um, and it turned out that she scored at 3.8. Oh, interesting. Even with the adjustments I made for aphasia. So even in all my assessments, I changed it so that it wasn't so language based. Um, and I cross checked her with all kinds of activities to see what was going on for her, but she was quite low level. And the, the big issue for her was her aphasia. Huh. And so part of my recommendation to them was um, let me get my um, to have a first of all, she'd not been assessed by a, a geriatric clinical psychologist mm. to measure her dementia, even to give her a dementia mm -hmm. diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And she definitely needed that. Um, the other thing I actually set them both up with was and encouraged. I gave this information. They had a large, large, large family. And so I met with all of the family at once, which was a real luxury. Yeah. And one of the things I recommended to them is they set up a medical notebook for each of their parents. Oh, and I um, 
detailed what should go in that notebook. So for example, I said there should be their name, birthday, social security number, the name of their physicians and phone numbers, their medical insurance, along with the phone, phone numbers and contact information, allergies, blood type, advanced directives, pulse form, and I explained what those things were to them. Uh, medical history and problem list and listing the most important uh, medical condition first on that list. Mm. Current medications with their dates and dose and pharmacy. Um, and then a section for complete medical records and um, for them to ask for copies of doctor's visits, therapy visits, specialists, that kind of thing. Partly because they were such a big family mm. and they were sharing the care. Oh, yeah. So everybody needed to have access to that information yeah. right away yeah. when doctor's appointments happen. So can I ask you one question? Mm -hmm. So I think it comes up more often than I would expect that when I screen someone, I'm coming upon questionable cognition. Mm -hmm. It's not in the chart. Mm -hmm. And I know this is also a potential, I don't know if I would say like privilege, but it's a very important, I think, position yes. that we're in to catch it. Yes. And sometimes I think it's kind of like a hot potato where you're like, okay, I've got this. Mm -hmm. And I know I'm like, well, I know I can't label it. Um, mm -hmm. per se, I can say there's a functional impairment or there's mm -hmm. an impairment with cognition that's affecting a function, mm -hmm. but somebody else needs to label it if it's going to go in the chart. And so I'm curious about the wording that you use in making these referrals, because I think I've been using something like recommending further testing. And I've seen on one of the screens, it uses the words for a dementing disorder, and I don't necessarily like those words. Mm -hmm. um, but what would be wording you would suggest when you are making that recommendation? Obtain a definitive diagnosis for mental status, possibly of dementia, by a geriatric physician or a neuropsychologist. Great. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I love it. Um, and I also said obtain an updated evaluation of aphasia. Mm -hmm. And um, its relationship to her dementia and hearing loss. Mm. That was the other thing she needed to have evaluated. Mm. And then to be evaluated by a speech therapist specifically. Mm. So it's one thing to diagnose it. Yeah. But then you want a speech therapist yeah. to engage. Um, and then I, in this person's care, she must have 24-hour supervision in a protected environment. Her home was not that because mm. her husband would leave, go out to lunch, be gone for a while. You know, he, he she was not getting 24-hour supervision. Um, she wasn't a flight risk, but um, she was unsafe to be alone in the house. Yeah. Um, and then I gave them some hints that if they moved her, if they, she and her husband moved to, for example, assisted living or whatever, that she would need transplant care. You know, they can't just drop her off and move them in. And so I said, um, first of all, they, they had the funds and they said, consider consulting a reputable elder care placement agency for identifying the place to go. Cause they, in our area, they've got some great professional placement agencies. They have their own association that they've formed. And then uh, for her to be helped to transplant in a new place. So caregiver, she'll need to have a caregiver set up her daily routines to mimic her current routines and somebody to teach her how to find the meals and the toilet and social activities. Asterisk Home Health could do this. Okay. That's right. Provide a balance of rest and activity and social and private time because mm. she wouldn't be able to budget that for herself. 
and provide activities that matched her remaining abilities. And part of my report involved that. I spelled out at 3.8 what those were. So there was a section on that. Oh my gosh, I love all of this. <laughs> so I think it's fascinating that you were brought on board to really look at cognition and you caught not as an OT that um, the comprehensive web you mm-hmm. were able to cast of mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. making all these referrals. And that a lot of those last things you mentioned, home health OTs can address. And I think often we forget that we can address those. So if someone's newly relocated, really helping them adapt into new routines to familiarize themselves with the environment, um, to work with their new caregivers if possible. So I just wanted to Mm -hmm. bookmark that for a little bit. Well, and that reminds me actually of another client that I had um, in private practice that she was blind and she'd been blind for a long time and she had lived fine in the community, but now she was in assisted living and she had a, I think, full-time caregiver, somebody around or at least a lot of the day. But what often happens with full-time caregivers at that stage, she just stayed in her room and the caregiver did everything. And so, um, part of what I wanted to understand is what, where she was, she had declined cognitively. Um, but the caregiver didn't understand anything about how to work with somebody who's mm-hmm. blind. And so, um, it started with the table that she was sitting at the mm-hmm. dining room table that was part of her own furniture. Mm-hmm. And, um, I just encourage you to feel the table mm. and the, the caregiver to repeat to her, this is your table mm. from your house. Mm. And as she stood up, she could feel the edges of her table and to move. So she would get lost, not going, she couldn't go out of the room by herself or even with the caregiver, not holding her hand all the time. Yeah. But I wanted her to be more engaged yeah. Yeah. and use her remaining abilities, even though they were kind of minimal yeah. from the standpoint. Yeah. But once we, did that. And each time the caregiver would need to say, this is your dining room table and feel the edge of it. And then feel this chair. And there's one, two chairs. Here's the first chair. Here's the second chair. And then on the way out of her room was some big plant that was actually right next to it. And so I coached the caregiver say, and what's coming up next is your big plant and then help her feel it and then feel the door frame. Mm. And now you're outside Mm. and she needed that every day, but she brightened right up. So she was having depression and you know, it it just solved a lot of things. And then she's engaged and she actually was able to do a few more things. I can't remember all the details, but that really stood out to me. Oh, it's fascinating Mm -hmm. because the other thing is that you're really, the other phrase that's really sticking out with all this is remaining abilities. Yes. It gets so tempting when we see, like, oh, dementia, you know, that there's this yeah. like, all right, but there's, you know, these things that they can't do mm-hmm. instead of really being able to tune into the remaining abilities and then also training the people who are in their environment to kind of speak the language of remaining abilities, quote yes. unquote, yes. you know, um, which I think is perhaps one of the many but special languages that OT can teach mm-hmm. in the homes mm-hmm. with these things. So I'm also curious to be more a fly on the wall Mm -hmm. in in other sessions with you, with either this woman, um, like if you could highlight other things that you remember coming across in sessions with her um, or with other clients that will just give us more glimpses of like 
options of what can be done when we're really in the environment with people who are struggling mm-hmm. or just have changed abilities mm-hmm. cognitively? Um, I'll give that a little bit of thought, see if that'll work in the back of my brain. One of the things I wanted to mention was a lot of caregivers have a lot more fun with people mm-hmm. when they're doing these kinds of things. Yeah. Like this is how, this is how you can coach yeah. somebody. It's a lot more fun for the mm. caregiver. The other thing Great I wanted point. to say, you were talking about remaining abilities, that was Claudia Allen's huge contribution mm. and continues to be. She was not looking at what limits were. I mean, you take that into account, yeah. but really who is this person now? What can they do? Yeah. Like there's so much left. Yes. And just... how do we change the environment to meet them? Yes. That's It was phenomenal. I mean, yeah. that's why I was spellbound the first time that I saw her speak and that oh my god I never thought of that either I just yeah. thought well you can't drive you can't balance mm-hmm. your checkbook you can't be trusted with a stove yeah you know it's yes. like this is a completely different way yes um I got one more yeah. story here I'm not sure if it's going to answer what you were imagining that I would answer but um it's an example of one of the issues that might present People again. This is for my private practice. There was a fellow um, who I bet he's probably in his fifties, but he lived in memory care and he had a lot of psychiatric, psychological kinds of issues about why he was there. Mm. Um, and cognitively, he scored around a four point four, four point six, would which would lead a person to think he's too high functioning to really be in memory care. Mm. Yeah, but there were other mental health and behavioral things going on. Hmm. And um, one of the things that I noticed with, and so the question was, what could we get him involved in that would be some sort of uh, meaningful activity or volunteering or whatever? That was the task Mm -hmm. I was presented with. Mm -hmm. And he had such profound self-worth issues that any time the tasks that I went through my regular assessments, um, anytime it got the least bit uh, difficult, he would just pull right back or he'd get up and leave or whatever. Mm. And um, he's very unreliable with taking, making make appointments. He'd sleep through them. And so there were a lot of sort of social issues mm. around. I think, as I recall, I think he had a lot of drug abuse in the past. And so I think there was just a lot of other focal damage yeah. that I wasn't able to assess. But um he was functioning basically at the age of a six-year-old child. And that notion of age equivalency yeah. is embedded in the Allen model, but it's a tricky one. I think we may have talked about it the last but, time too. Yeah. It's um, something people should be very, very careful about conveying. But in this case, the guardian was asking, care manager was asking me for this information. So for her, it was a helpful marker. Yeah. He's functioning with new information as a six-year-old would. Um, and so I made up a, a, a um, table of his strengths and weaknesses at um, both 4.4 and 4.6 so that <laughs> she would get a better idea. Mm-hmm. But then these are the recommendations that I made for his volunteer tasks that would be cognitively appropriate in my opinion. So pet exercise or grooming. Uh, assemble simple kits, mm. put supplies away in clearly marked categories that mm. were set up by somebody else, 
um, count and record objects like a simple inventory, mm. assist an activity director in the uh, memory oh. care where he was living, or he could he could be trusted to go with somebody out of the unit onto assisted living. So he could be the aide to oh the gosh. activity director. Mm. And he enjoyed playing simple card games. And um, so he would be a good partner with somebody in another part of the facility, but he needed supervision. Mm. Um, and then my recommendations included as a condition for starting the volunteer position that to write a social contract with him that would establish effective sleep, sleep and wake cycles. Cause that was what would happen with me is he'd oversleep mm. and he had his own alarm clock. He had his own watch and he was capable of telling time. Yes. So have a social contract with him where you'd balance the reward mm. and withdrawing the reward. Mm. Um, and that he would take his medications um, as prescribed because he would go through periods of refusing to take his medications. Um, and I said, in note, a volunteer position will not be successful unless Robert can demonstrate reliability. Mm. Um, and then establish an on-site coach at the volunteer site that who is willing to provide support and encouragement and demonstrate tasks and guidance through him um, and review this report, the guidelines that I had written out with that person. And that person would communicate with the care team. Yeah. So this is how the kind of system I thought would set up for success for him. Yeah, which is really fascinating too, because I know when I first started in home health, I was not used to addressing the caregiver in such ways where it was kind of like, well, uh -huh. if they're not going to learn anything, then kind of forget it. Instead of being like, eh, I think things might be difficult for new learning. Who's the next line of defense, yes. you know, and to bring in the next layer mm -hmm. if it's available and they're willing right. to do it. But that's genius. Mm -hmm. <sighs> what a great ideas, Mary. <laughs> So, and I'm curious to you, before we wrap up on the remaining abilities, um, I think of the interest checklist mm -hmm. to kind of help dig in a little bit of where people are interested, if they can answer those things, or to maybe go to a family member to at least see what some of their levels of interest are. Yeah, that's a good way to start. But but with the Ellen, it will show you things that are the specifics of what's remaining yes in very practical terms yeah. this person can use a sample this person can't use a sample yeah. this person can use written information this person can't use this person needs a demonstration yeah. so that is that's what's that's in my manual yeah. but that's what's in the uh, claudia allen's first notebook yeah. that's what's meant for yeah. It's like you mat they're you're matching their scope of attention, mm -hmm. their length of attention, mm -hmm. the space of their attention, even. So that's the other thing yeah. that was a miracle yes. to me. It's like, wow, you could actually measure it at the low levels, it's gonna be twelve inches yeah. from their nose. Yeah. And the distinction between their being able to see it mm -hmm. isn't the same as their attending to yes. it. The attention is a relationship. Yes. And so just the fact that they can see something is important obviously right, right. but attention means they have a relationship with that and that's spatial that's one of the things that uh, claudia and her crew her colleagues established and so across the table if it's if it's a regular size table yeah that might be the scope of their attention yeah and i remember her saying in clinic yeah they would be sitting there and say where's the sink yeah 
because the sink was to their left or right, right. a few feet away. Yes. And they may have walked by it a million times, but they're not scanning the environment right. below 4.6, for example. Which is fascinating also with call lights. Yes. Because it's like sometimes yes. they're put in places, but the it's like if the call light goes very briefly out of its spot or if it just requires mm-hmm. a looking to the right, then that can be a whole trigger. but that's a, there's another layer to that too because can they even identify when they have a problem yeah and you will find that yeah. on the scale as yes, well you will find that there and you'll and you're meant to test it so yeah. if you if they tested at a range where they probably wouldn't be able to identify um a problem mm-hmm. falling out of bed or whatever not that you should throw them out of bed obviously but you should test that rather than just say no they can't identify hazards you should be Give testing it. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Mary Platt, thank you so much. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to get to learn and talk with you. You're welcome. And I look forward to um, next chapters. Please do keep us posted. Sure. Um, and thank you again so much. You're welcome. And thank you for listening. Uh, this has been another episode brought to you live um, from Portland, Oregon. This is a quote from Glennon Doyle in her book called Untamed. In my 30s, I learned that there is a type of pain in life that I want to feel. It's the inevitable, excruciating, necessary pain of losing beautiful things. Trust, dreams, health, animals, relationships, people. This kind of pain is the price of love, the cost of living a brave, open-hearted life, and I'll pay it. There is another kind of pain that comes not from losing beautiful things, but from never even trying for them. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Home Health Occupational Therapy Explore podcast. If you want to stay updated or get more deeply involved, with our why, which is inspiring possibility and nourishment for the home health OT mindset, go to tillandwater.com and sign up for our emails. Sounds silly, but this one step could help inspire a paradigm shift for your practice. And if this message can help someone you know, please share it with them. And until next time, keep stirring your inspiration.